0: There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from a Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. August 14. On this date in history, in the year 2003, a blackout hits the Northeast United States. A major outage knocked out power across the eastern United States and parts of Canada on August 14, 2003. Beginning at 4.10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 21 power plants shut down in just three minutes. Fifty million people were affected, including residents of New York, Cleveland, and Detroit, as well as Toronto and Ottawa, Canada. Although power companies were able to resume some service in as little as two hours, Power remained off in other places for more than a day. The outage stopped trains and elevators and disrupted everything from cellular telephone service to operations at hospitals to traffic at airports. In New York City, it took more than two hours for passengers to be evacuated from stalled subway trains. Small business owners were affected when they lost expensive refrigerated stock. The loss of use of electric water pumps interrupted water service in many areas. There were even some reports of people being stranded mid-ride on amusement park roller coasters. At the New York Stock Exchange and bond market, though, trading was able to continue thanks to backup generators. Authorities soon calmed the fears of jittery Americans that terrorists may have been responsible for the blackout, But they were initially unable to determine the cause of the massive outage. American and Canadian representatives pointed fingers at each other, while politicians took the opportunity to point out major flaws in the region's outdated power grid. Finally, an investigation by a joint U.S.-Canada task force traced the problem back to an Ohio company, First Energy Corporation. When the company's East Lake plant shut down unexpectedly after overgrown trees came into contact with a power line, it triggered a series of problems that led to a chain reaction of outages. First Energy was criticized for poor line maintenance and, more importantly, for failing to notice and address the problem in a timely manner before it affected other areas. Despite concerns, there were very few reports of looting, or other blackout-inspired crime. In New York City, the police department, out in full force, actually recorded about 100 fewer arrests than average. In some places, citizens even took it upon themselves to mitigate the effects of the outage by assisting elderly neighbors or helping to direct traffic in the absence of working traffic lights. In New York City alone, The estimated cost of the blackout was more than $500 million. August 15. On this date in history, in the year 1969, the Woodstock Festival opens in Bethel, New York. On August 15, 1969, the Woodstock Music Festival opens on a patch of farmland in White Lake, a hamlet in the upstate New York town of Bethel. Promoters John Roberts, Joel Rosenman, Artie Cornfield, and Michael Lang originally envisioned the festival as a way to raise funds to build a recording studio and rock-and-roll retreat near the town of Woodstock, New York. The longtime artists' colony was already a home base for Bob Dylan and other musicians. Despite their relative inexperience, the young promoters managed to sign a roster of top acts, including The Jefferson Airplane, The Who, The Grateful Dead, Sly and the Family Stone, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Creedence Clearwater Revival, and many more. Plans for the festival were on the verge of foundering, however, after both Woodstock and the nearby town of Wallkill denied permission to hold the event. Dairy Farmer, Max Yasker, came to the rescue at the last minute, giving the promoters access to his 600 acres of land in Bethel, some 50 miles from Woodstock. Early estimates of attendance increased from 50,000 to around 200,000, but by the time the gates opened on Friday, August 15, more than 400,000 people were clamoring to get in. Those without tickets simply walked through gaps in the fences, and the organizers were eventually forced to make the event free of charge. Folk singer and guitarist Richie Havens kicked off the event with a long set, and Joan Baez and Arlo Guthrie also performed on Friday night. Though Woodstock had left its promoters nearly bankrupt, their ownership of the film, and recording rights more than compensated for the losses after the release of a hit documentary film in 1970. Later, music festivals inspired by Woodstock's success failed to live up to its standard, and the festival still stands for many as an example of America's 1960s youth counterculture at its best. August 16. On this date in history, in the year 2009, Usain Bolt sets the 100-meter-dash world record. On August 16, 2009, under the lights of Berlin's Olympic Stadium at the World Championships, 22-year-old Usain Bolt strikes a lightning-bolt pose and grins before taking his mark. Then the Jamaican, already the fastest man in the world, shatters his own world record in the 100-meter-dash winning the event in 9.58 seconds. He becomes the first to run the event in less than 9.6 seconds. Bolt's time of 9.69 at the 2008 Beijing Olympics was not only a world record, but also the first time the 100-meter dash had been run in under 9.7 seconds. Bolt's stunning speed and laid-back, playful personality made him an international celebrity in the wake of his Olympic gold, but observers noted that he had not finished his race in Beijing at full speed. Soon, many speculated Bolt could shatter his own world record. It happened the next year in the same stadium where trail-blazing sprinter Jesse Owens had covered himself in glory at the 1936 Olympics. After sailing through the preliminary heats Bolt lined up for the 100-meter final alongside Tyson Gay, an American sprinter considered his main challenger at the time. On Gay's other side was Bolt's countryman, Asafa Powell. Together, they were the three fastest men in the world. Although his starts were considered a weakness, Bolt started strongly and got better over the course of the sprint. Even as Gay ran the race of his life, Finishing in 9.71 seconds, Bolt pulled away from him, winning by more than a meter. As an exuberant Bolt continued running along the curve of the track, thumping his chest and receiving adulation from the crowd, his official time was announced. Afterward, Bolt said he could run even faster, perhaps even 9.4. He retired after the 2017 World Championships without reaching that mark but his 100-meter record endures. August 17, on this date in history in the year 1969, the Woodstock Music Festival concludes. One of the all-time grooviest events in music history, the Woodstock Music and Art Fair draws a close after three days of peace, love, and rock and roll in upstate New York. Conceived as three days of peace and music, Woodstock was a product of a partnership between John Roberts, Joel Rosenman, Artie Cornfield, and Michael Lang. Their idea was to make money from the event to build a recording studio near the Artie, New York, town of Woodstock. When they couldn't find an appropriate venue on the town itself, the promoters decided to hold the festival on a 600-acre dairy farm in Bethel, New York, some 50 miles from Woodstock, owned by Max Yasker. By the time the weekend of the festival arrived, the group had sold a total of 186,000 tickets and expected no more than 200 people to show up. By Friday night, however, thousands of eager early arrivals were pushing against the entrance gates. Fearing they could not control the crowds, the promoters made the decision to open the concert to everyone free of charge. Close to a half a million people attended Woodstock, jamming the roads around Bethel with eight miles of traffic soaked by rain, and wallowing in the muddy mess of Yasker's Field, young fans, best described as hippies, euphorically took in the performances of acts like Janis Joplin, Arlo Guthrie, Joe Cocker, Joan Baez, Credence, Clearwater Revival, The Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, Sly and the Family Stone, and Crosby Stills, Nash & Young. The Who performed in the early morning hours of August 17, with Roger Daltrey belting out See Me, Feel Me, from the now-classic album Tommy, just as the sun began to rise. The most memorable moment of the concert, for many fans, was the closing performance by Jimi Hendrix, who gave a rambling, rocking solo guitar performance of the Star-Spangled Banner. With not enough bathroom facilities and first-aid tents to accommodate such a huge crowd, many described the atmosphere at the festival as chaotic. There were surprisingly few episodes of violence, though one teenager was accidentally run over and killed by a tractor, and another died from a drug overdose. A number of musicians performed songs expressing their opposition to the Vietnam War, a sentiment that was enthusiastically shared by a vast majority of the audience. Later, the term Woodstock Nation would be used as a general term to describe the youth counterculture of the 1960s. A 25th anniversary celebration of Woodstock took place in 1994 in Saugerties, New York. Known as Woodstock II, the concert featured Bob Dylan and Crosby Stills and Nash, as well as newer acts such as Nine Inch Nails and Green Day. Held over another rainy, muddy weekend, the event drew an estimated 300,000 people. Another less successful Woodstock was held in 1999. A major 50th anniversary festival was planned for 2019, but it never came to fruition. August 18. On this date in history, in the year 1931, the Yangtze River peaks in China. On August 18, 1931, the Yangtze River in China peaks during a horrible flood that kills 3.7 million people directly and indirectly over the next several months. This was perhaps the worst natural disaster of the 20th century. The Yangtze River runs through southern China, one of the most populated areas on Earth. The region's people, most of whom lived at subsistence level, depended on the river for water for their personal and farming needs. In April, the river basin area received far above average rainfall. When torrential rains came again in July, the stage was set for disaster the Yangtze flooded over a 500-square-mile area. The rising waters drove 500,000 people from their homes by the beginning of August. As the waters continued to rise in the first half of August, and even more rain fell, the rice fields that dominated the landscape were swamped, destroying the crop. Major cities such as Wuhan and Nanjing depended on this rice, and without it, people in the cities starved to death. In addition, typhoid and dysentery were rampant due to the polluted river. The millions who died from this flood perished from starvation and disease, many after the flood waters had receded. Much of the disaster may have been averted if flood control measures had been followed closely. The Yangtze carries large amounts of sediment which accumulates in certain areas of the river and must be cleared regularly. However. With much of the area's resources devoted to civil war at the time, the river was neglected. August 19. On this date in history in the year 1964, the Beatles kick off their first U.S. tour at San Francisco's Cow Palace. The Beatles took America by storm during their famous first visit wowing the millions who watched them during their historic television appearances on The Ed Sullivan Show in February 1964. But after the first great rush of stateside Beatlemania, the Beatles promptly returned to Europe, leaving their American fans to make do with mere records. By late summer of that same year, however, having put on an unprecedented and still unmatched display of pop chart dominance during their absence, the Beatles finally returned. On August 19, 1964, more than six months after taking the East Coast by storm, the Fab Four traveled to California to take the stage at the Cow Palace in San Francisco for opening night of their first-ever concert tour of North America. Although in retrospect, it would seem a laughable underestimation of their drawing power in America, Beatles manager Brian Epstein chose venues like the 17,000-seat Cow Palace for the 1964 tour expressly because he feared that the Beatles might not sell out large sports stadiums like San Francisco's Candlestick Park, where they would play their final official concert in 1966. Suffice it to say that the Beatles had no difficulty filling the Cow Palace, which was packed with 17,130 screaming fans, when the group bounded to the stage shortly after 9 o'clock p.m. on this day in 1964 and launched into Twist and Shout. The Beatles' set that night and throughout the tour that followed featured only 12 songs, most often in this order. Twist and Shout, You Can't Do That, All My Loving, She Loves You, Things We Said Today, Roll Over Beethoven. Can't Buy Me Love, If I Fell, I Want to Hold Your Hand, Boys, A Hard Day's Night, and Long Tall Sally. At other stops on the tour, the Beatles' performance would last approximately 33 minutes, but the show that night in San Francisco lasted some five minutes longer, not because of any difference in the Beatles' performance, but because of police intervention to stem the growing pandemonium. Within the first few seconds of the first song that night, at least one radio journalist, traveling with the Beatles, had been trampled to the ground, along with a young female fan who broke a leg in the melee. And thanks to an offhand comment by George Harrison, about the group's favorite candy in the days leading up to the show, the Beatles themselves were pelted with flying jelly beans throughout that night's set. Though John, Paul, George, and Ringo were uninjured, they left the Cow Palace that night by ambulance after their limousine was swarmed by berserk fans. It was a scene that would become familiar to them as they continued on their first historic tour of America in the months ahead. August 14. On this date in history, in the year 1945, a 17-year-old becomes the youngest to hit a Major League Baseball home run. On August 20, 1945, 11 days after the atomic bombing of Nagasaki, Japan, Brooklyn Dodgers utility player Tommy Brown homers to drive in his team's only run in an 11-1 loss to the Pittsburgh Pirates. It seems insignificant, aside from the fact that, at 17 years old, Brown remains the youngest player to homer in a Major League Baseball game, a feat unlikely to be duplicated. Born in the Bensonhurst section of Brooklyn, on December 6, 1927, Brown made his debut with the Dodgers in 1944, when he was 16, during World War II, millions of men served overseas. Future Hall of Famers Ted Williams and Yogi Berra were among them. So many teens got their first shot in the big leagues. 15-year-old Joe Nuxhall pitched two-thirds of an inning for the Cincinnati Reds in the summer of 1944. On August 3, 1944. Brown was called up from Newport News, Virginia, builders of the Class B Piedmont League, to make his Major League Baseball debut. The Dodgers had tried Bobby Braggin at shortstop but were looking for someone more mobile. Dodgers managers Leo Durocher told Brown that day he would play both games of a doubleheader against the Chicago Cubs. Brown, according to a bio on the Society of American Baseball Research website, advised his manager that he had ridden the train all night, but Leo responded that he didn't care. Brown got two hits and eight at bats as the Cubs beat the Dodgers in both games, six to two and seven to one. Brown wound up playing 46 games for the Dodgers in 1944, hitting 164 without a homer. After starting 1945 in the minor leagues, Brown returned to the Dodgers in July, becoming the team's number 1 shortstop for the remainder of the season. He hit his first Major League Baseball home run against Pittsburgh's Preacher Rowe, who won 127 games in the big leagues. Five days later, Brown hit the second home run of his career against the New York Giants' Adrian Zabala. He finished the season with a .245 batting average. Brown played seven more seasons in the big leagues, spending time with the Philadelphia Phillies and Cubs after leaving Brooklyn. He never became anything more than a part-time player, but his distinction of the youngest person to homer in the majors endures. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for August 14 through August 20. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, we invite you to connect or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then,